Colossians chapter 1 and starting at verse number 15. Talking of Jesus, Paul says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once... You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, it is undoubtedly the universal symbol of the Christian church. For for well over a thousand years now, it's been the symbol that has represented Christianity right around our world. I'm, of course, talking about the cross. Uh, You see it on top of churches Uh, You see it in cemeteries, you see it worn as jewellery, you're even increasingly seeing it as tattoos that people are wearing. And in some ways, it's a bit of a strange symbol for Christianity, isn't it? It's a strange thing to have chosen to represent what it is that we believe as Christians. Uh, Crucifixion was the preferred method of execution in the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus was by no means the only person to have died on a cross. Uh, It was common for executions to happen via the cross in those days. In fact, it was a practice that lasted for close to a thousand years around the Mediterranean Sea. It started probably well before 600 BC and it was Constantine, the Roman Emperor, who banned the practice in the Roman Empire in 337 AD. And there would be no way of estimating how many people died by by, uh, crucifixion in the Roman Empire, but the number would be well into the tens of thousands, probably even the hundreds of thousands of people who died that way. After the slave uprising uh, led by Spartacus, 6,000 slaves were crucified in one go. And their crosses lined the Apian Way, the, the, the highway into Rome, to, to warn the other slaves that you don't try this, you don't do this against the Roman Empire. 6,000 crosses with men hanging on them. But when people put a cross on a church, when they put a cross on a grave, when they wear one around their neck or when they get one tattooed onto their arm... They're not trying to celebrate that Roman form of execution, are they? And they're not remembering the tens or hundreds of thousands of people who died on crosses, are they? They're remembering one. They're remembering Jesus. And in a strange way, the cross itself, 
It's just a trivial detail in the story of Jesus. It's not how Jesus died that we want to remember. It's the fact that Jesus did die. That's the important element in the story. The the cross, in some ways, is, is almost coincidental. Now, today we're looking at the work of Jesus. And the cross clearly stands at the centre of what it is that Jesus came to do. But before we can really understand the cross, we've got to remember what we saw already. We've been looking through this series of what we believe, the the kind of ten major doctrines in the Christian church. And and it's really that, uh, the one from a couple of weeks ago, sin and suffering that we need to be reminded of before we can understand what the cross is all about. We saw that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. They rejected God's authority and they rejected God's authority because they wanted to be God for themselves. They wanted to decide what happened in their lives. They wanted to be the master of their own destiny, the captain of their own ship. Sin entered into the world because Adam and Eve chose to reject God. And that sin's problem spread. See, every single one of us now has this disposition, this sinful nature at work within us. Every single one of us has this inclination to reject God and to be God for myself. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide what's good and evil. I'll decide what it is that I do. I won't be listening to God on that front. That's the disposition of all of us. It's like that bowling ball. You know, when you, when you get out onto the bowling green and you bowl that ball, it's not going to go straight. It has that bias. It's going to move in that direction. And that's the bias that we have, thanks to Adam and Eve. But worse than that, it's not just that we reject God. The Bible says that we're actually deserving of God's judgment. I was talking to a high school scripture teacher when we lived up on the north coast and he was saying that he thought the whole idea of God judging people was just totally offensive. He thought that if God was genuinely loving, then God should just forgive everybody. And I said to him, if you go back to your class after this session that we've got in the auditorium, if you go back to your class, if your class were just to ignore you for the rest of the lesson, how would you feel about that? Would you think that maybe a punishment might be necessary? If they're just ignoring you, they're not necessarily doing anything really bad. They just don't even acknowledge your existence in the classroom. And he said, oh, well, I, I, I'd just forgive them. I'd be understanding of that. And I said, well, okay, next class, they, they do the same thing. And he kept telling me that he wanted to be forgiving and that he'd understand and that he wouldn't want to punish the children. He didn't think that would be right. Uh, eventually I said, you're getting towards the end of the term, the final exams are coming up and they're still just ignoring you. And eventually he conceded, well, there'd probably be some place for some kind of punishment if that continued to happen. Well, if that's how a school teacher feels about a class that ignores him, how much more serious is it when the people whom God has created live a life where they ignore him and reject him. Well, the cross is God's most significant step in dealing with our rejection of him. 
Now, there's no question that the death of Jesus stands at the very centre of what it was that Jesus came to do. You could look at the work of Jesus and look at his miracles and look at his teaching, but if you want to look at the work of Jesus, the Gospel writers say there is one thing that you need to understand, and that's the cross. You only need to look at the Gospel accounts to uh, to see that. Uh, let me give you a little example. Uh, this box at the top here, it represents the ministry life of Jesus. There's one week for every year. He effectively ministered for three years. So one week for every week of his ministry, and that little red box at the end is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus arrives in in, uh, in Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, uh, spends time with his disciples. On the Thursday night, they celebrate that, that Passover together, that Last Supper. Friday morning, he is arrested, he is crucified on the Friday. Sunday, he ro- rose again from the dead. So that's that final week of Jesus' life and ministry. This is the proportions that the gospel writers give to the life and ministry of Jesus. They're overwhelmingly wanting to talk about that one week, aren't they? On average, it's a third of their gospel is devoted to one week in the life of Jesus. 30% of their writing is devoted to less than 1% of the working life of Jesus. It's not hard to see the importance that they place on the cross, is it? So how do you sum up what it is that Jesus did in his death on the cross? Well, it's a tricky thing because the Bible wants to use a variety of different images and ideas to explain what it is that Jesus has done on the cross. There are some concepts that that are quite technical and perhaps even difficult for us to understand. Propitiation is one of the words that get used, or atonement is another word. But then there are some other very basic concepts that get used to describe the death of Jesus on the cross, things that we can understand very easily, things like substitute or ransom or even sacrifice. Sacrifice is probably the obvious one to start thinking about. Uh, Life for people in the pages of the Old Testament was dominated by sacrifices, If you lived in Jerusalem, the temple was right in the centre of the city and every day you or someone that you knew would be going to the temple to make a sacrifice. Sacrifices were part of everyday life. Sacrifices were this continual reminder of three things. Firstly, that sin is serious. Secondly, that sin stands in the way of you having a friendship with God. And thirdly, sin is costly. Because every time you're taking that sacrifice up there, it's money out of your pocket that's being used to pay for this sacrifice. The two big events in the life of national Israel were the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur is what what it's called. Uh, It was a kind of a national day of acknowledgement of sin. Everybody was to remember that we are sinful people, but that sin can be forgiven. We can be restored to a relationship with God. But the other thing was the Passover, the reminder that God had rescued them from Egypt. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it was foreshadowing what Jesus would come and do. It was awaiting its fulfilment In that one sacrifice, in that death of Jesus on the cross. 
It's interesting that the gospel writers never use the word sacrifice to describe what it is that Jesus does. I mean, Paul clearly understands it that way. Here's a couple of verses where he says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Or, for Christ is our Passover lamb. Or, for Christ, sorry, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul sees that what Jesus has come to do is the fulfilment of that Old Testament sacrificial system. But sacrifice is only one of the ways that uh, is used to describe what Jesus does on the cross. One of the ways that Jesus himself describes what he does is ransom. And then Paul picks up that idea as well. Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. That one's pretty easy to relate to, isn't it? That someone's being held captive and another person steps in to pay the price that's necessary for them to be redeemed, for them to be bought back. We're being held captive by sin. And Jesus is the one who has redeemed us. Substitutes, another idea that gets used in the pages of the Bible, but probably the clearest example of where substitution comes in has got to be Isaiah chapter 53. It's remarkable, isn't it? A passage written hundreds of years before the death of Jesus on the cross can sum up so perfectly what it was that Jesus came to do. I haven't got time to read the whole of Isaiah 53, so just let me read you a few verses. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But probably the dominant idea in the pages of the New Testament to describe the death of Jesus on the cross, it's actually courtroom language, judicial language, talking about justice and righteousness. Those two words come from the same Greek source. It's just one word in Greek that gets translated in slightly different ways. Here's what Paul says about righteousness and justice. Now, when you hear righteousness, that is to be declared not guilty. That's what we're talking about there. This is what Paul says. It comes from from Romans chapter 3. I've kind of trimmed it down a little bit because it's a very dense passage but to just get the the basic sense of what Paul is saying. But now a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. He did it to demonstrate his justice in the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Righteousness means we are not guilty before God. The verdict comes in 
How do we get that not guilty verdict? By faith in Jesus, if you trust in him. And it comes because God is gracious. But it also comes because God has to be just. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. He can't just ignore what has gone wrong. And at the end of that verse, he says that God has done this in order to be just and to be the same one who justifies people. Someone had to take responsibility for our wrongdoing. And Jesus has willingly assumed that responsibility. One of the objections that people have about the death of Jesus is to ask the question of whether or not it was really necessary for it to happen. Again, as my school teacher friend up on the North Coast thought, if God's loving, well, surely he doesn't have to punish people. I mean, no one needed to die, really, did they? Or some people even take it one step further and suggest that it's actually barbaric that God would punish his own son for the sins of other people. But I have to say, I find some of these arguments a little bit confusing. I don't think I know a single person, in fact, I doubt there'd be a single person in this world who doesn't want more justice in our world. Turn on the news tonight, I'm sure it will leave you wishing that we lived in a more just world. We'll hear about more deaths in Syria. We'll hear about more atrocities happening in Africa or other parts of the world. We want more justice, don't we? We want to live in a world where sin is taken seriously. If you were to watch the news tonight and see a story about a murderer who's clearly guilty of their crime being let free by the judge, the judge said, you know what, we're just going to forget about this one, there'd be an outcry, wouldn't there? We'd be complaining about the judicial system or we'd be pointing the finger at that judge and saying, how dare you let that person go? But for some strange reason, when God says that he is going to bring about perfect and universal justice in our world, some people think it's unnecessary or excessive. Another common objection that people sometimes have, and I've heard this a number of times, is who is God to judge us? Well, the answer's right there in the statement. He's God. This is his world. You were created by him. Of course he has the right to judge. Again, one objection that people sometimes have is that it's unjust for Jesus to take the punishment for us. Even barbaric Someone's once described it as being cosmic child abuse that God would do that to his own son. But let's be totally clear about this. Jesus is not some innocent bystander in this story who got dragged in to take a punishment that he knew nothing about. Jesus is God. And it is God who has been wronged in this equation. So it is God taking the penalty upon himself. God, the one who's been sinned against, is picking up the cost for our sin. And in doing so, God is showing that he is passionately committed to justice. 
He can't and won't turn a blind eye to sin. He can't and won't just sweep it under the rug. And we should thank God that he's like that, shouldn't we? And again, Jesus isn't being forced to do something against his will. This is the way that Jesus describes it in John's Gospel. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus is willingly laying down his life. As I said, the gospel writers see the cross as being at the very centre of the message about Jesus. And can I say, we need to make sure that the cross remains at the very centre of our Christian lives, at the very centre of our church, and at the very centre of the message that we have to take to our world. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just obvious, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure that it always is. I'm not sure it does always stay at the centre of our lives or our church, and it's certainly not always at the centre of the message that the church presents to the world. It should stand at the centre of my Christian life. I should never forget that there is only one way that I've been made right with God. You'll be encouraged to think that you are a self-made person, that you have got yourself to where you are today, You cannot make that claim in your relationship with God. It is only by what God has done for you through his son when you were powerless, when you were helpless to do anything for yourself that God makes you right with Jesus. And we need to keep remembering that. My forgiveness, my relationship with God, the eternal life that I have in store for me I need to thank God for those things every day because they are things that he has given to me. And we need to make sure that the cross is at the centre of our church. We exist as a church because of the cross and for the sake of the cross. It should shape and influence how we do things as a church. Let me give you an example. How should we treat each other here within the life of our church? Or we should love each other. Why should we love each other? Well, we've known each other for ages. Of course we'd love each other. Or we're good friends. We've been neighbours for years. That's why we love each other. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you should love because God has loved you and sent his son to die for you. So that means that you love even the people that you don't know, even the people who aren't your neighbours and even the people who are new to the church. You have a responsibility to love them because God has loved you. So we need to make sure that it's a cross-shaped love that we've got for people here. And in the message that we present to the world, well, talking about sin and the need for forgiveness, it's not always that palatable. And sometimes we can fall into the trap of wanting to say other things that people are going to be more inclined to listen to. But we've only really got one message to give to people. We've only got one message that can change things. We've only got one message that can bring people into a relationship with God. 
And it's that cross-shaped message. So we need to make sure that that is the message that we want to communicate to people. We want people to hear this extraordinarily good news that forgiveness and life come through Jesus.